Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Okay, it is time to start. It is 7 o'clock. It is January the 4th, 2023. We are studying the book of Revelation. Tonight we're going to cover very, very briefly chapter 4, and then we'll get into chapter 5. Before we start, though, tonight is the second installment of The Lost Ark. Where is The Lost Ark? Tonight's theory is that it is in Rome somewhere, or in Italy. Vespasian is the father of Titus and Domitian. Titus is General Titus, the one who destroyed Jerusalem. He attacked Jerusalem to put down a rebellion, the Jewish rebellion that started in around 66 AD. When Rome, when the Roman armies go into a territory and take it over, they destroy everything in sight, they steal all the treasures they can get their hands on. One of the things that they bring back is religious artifacts. Religious artifacts as well as the religion of the people they conquered. Some historians say that possibly the lost ark is actually in Rome. Rome itself is very similar to to Jerusalem. In fact, in in the fact that Rome is built upon older versions of Rome... There are more tunnels and caves, I believe, under Rome than there, are, than there are even in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built upon older versions of Jerusalem. Rome is built on top of older versions of Rome. One of the theories is that when Titus went to destroy Jerusalem, he actually brought back a lot of the treasures from the temple, including the ark, if it was indeed there. There is an arch of triumph that was built by Titus. This is actually in Rome. It was built by Titus to celebrate his military conquest. On the inside of this arch, on I think it's on the left side there on the inside, there are these engravings. This particular engraving was to celebrate the conquest of Jerusalem. If you, if you look at it head on, you'll see the menorah from the temple. Now, okay, the menorah's there, fine. That's not as interesting to me as this box over here. There is a box in this, in this carving that is being carried by two poles. And some people say that's, that might actually be the, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there are historians who have gone back and looked at this, these carvings and created a 3D model of it. There's a closer version of it. There's the, there's the poles. They've made a 3D model of it, and this is the 3D model they came up with. Now, I'm no expert at this, but that doesn't exactly look like the box in the original carvings. This 3D model has that box being a dimensional table with a shelf in the middle and a shelf on the top. And I don't know why you would carry a table like that using two rods and several soldiers. 
That's the 3D model. That's the carving. Is that actually a table? I don't know. Is it the ark? I don't know. But this story gets a little more bizarre. There is a, there is a building in Rome called St. Saint, Saint John's Lateran. In the early days of the, of the Roman Catholic Church, this was the residence as well as the headquarters of the current, of whatever current Catholic Pope there was at the time. In 1099 AD, the Crusades liberated Jerusalem and Temple Mount. And it was a known fact that the religious world was starting to turn their attention towards Jerusalem as being the center of religion. The story goes that Rome didn't like that. The Roman Catholic Church did not like that. So what they did, they, they pulled a little bit of a stunt. During the medieval ages, they claimed that the Catholic Church had the remnants of the Ark of the Covenant in this building here. And if that wasn't enough, let's see, when was it? 1745, Pope Benedict XIV visited this church from the Vatican and he gave two orders. He said, take the table from the Last Supper, preserve it for what they call veneration, and take the Ark of the Covenant out of this building. Where they took it, I don't know. But he, he, he specifically mentioned those, those two items. So did the Catholic Church, did Rome actually have the Ark of the Covenant? Don't know. Today, the Vatican's stance is the Roman Catholic Church does not have the Ark of the Covenant and it never did have the Ark of the Covenant. I don't want to say someone's lying, but somebody's not telling the truth. I don't know what the truth is. No one knows what the truth is now. They say they have it, then they say they don't. They say it's on the arch, and then the, the historians say, no, that's not the ark. So where is the ark of the covenant? Don't know. It gets a little stranger. In 14 AD, a Germanic king called Alaric, Alaric, A-L-A-R-I-C, the Goth king, he paid a visit to Rome and totally destroyed the city. It was a bloodbath. And it was reported that he took tons of gold and silver out of the city. He laid the city waste, but the question was, did he find the ark? If the ark was there and he took all this treasure, did he possibly find the ark? After he destroyed Rome and took what he wanted, he headed down to what is the current the modern-day city of Casenza. He took his army down there and set up camp, waiting for the weather to, to, to let up so that he could invade Sicily. But while he was there, he died. Now, before his death, he told his servants, bury me and all of my treasure together. And then he told his army secretly, when I die, I want you to kill all of my servants so that the rest, my resting place will always be a secret. Well, it worked because no one knows where he's buried. No one knows where his treasure is. This story actually caught the attention of an infamous, infamous figure in history, Adolf Hitler. 
Adolf was was obsessed with religious artifacts and and mythical objects. Two of the things he was after was Thor's hammer, as in Captain Marvel, and the Ark of the Covenant. He actually created a, a branch of the SS to do nothing but go around the world and collect all of his little religious relics and, and gold. His SS division went down to this city and started searching for Alaric's gold. They wanted to find his his grave, and they knew if they found his grave, they were going to find his gold. History does not tell us, though, what happened. No one knows if he actually found, if they actually found anything. They don't know if maybe the German soldiers found it, stole it for themselves, and then disappeared. Don't know what happened to it. So, just like last week, where is the ark? Nobody knows. By the way, y'all checked your attics, right? I told you to do that last week. Yeah, I did too. I don't have it either. Boy, can you imagine what kind of price you can get for that thing if you can find it? Yeah. So where is the ark? We don't know. Next week, we're going to look at possibly Jeremiah taking off with the ark before the Babylonians got to town. That would be next week's installment of this Revelation characteristic. Tonight, we start chapters 4 and 5, and I believe we're actually going to get through chapter 5 tonight. I would like for uh, Mark Bailey to read for us. Uh, Glenn Holmes is out sick tonight, so I have asked uh, Mark Bailey to do our reading for us. That just reminded me, I need to get the Revelation illustrated. Ooh, that's not it. Where's my file? I wanted to bring up the Revelation Illustrated paintings to show you the, the, the um, there it is. I wanted to show you the paintings for chapters 4 and 5. Let's see. Okay, there we go. Okay. Okay, Mark Bailey is going to be reading from the New King James Version, chapter 4. Go ahead, Mark. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard, was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. 
The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and, do not, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Thank you. Is that coming up? Yes. Okay. Okay, Mark is going to read chapter 5 for us in just a few moments. I want to show you something. I want to demonstrate something in chapter 5 first before he reads the entire chapter. I would like to make one comment on chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, And before the throne there was a sea of glass likened to crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. If you don't know the premillennialistic doctrine of the afterlife, you're not going to see how there is premillennialism in some of the songs we sing. The vast majority of them, we can wave our hands, a little bit of reinterpretation, and go on our merry way, and it's fine. Occasionally, that's not the case, but most of the time, it is is the case. So our our songs are, are, for the most part, good. Poetic license, as I mentioned before, poetic license let me say that Jesus is the Rose of Sharon. It lets me say that Jesus is the bright and morning star. It does not allow us in our songs to make a statement that is factually inaccurate. There is, I agree, there is a little fuzzy wiggle room in there as far as what can be looked at figuratively and reinterpreted. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. One of the more interesting characteristics in our songs has to do with this crystal sea business. In the song, I will sing the wondrous story. If you look at the chorus, it says, Sing it with the saints in glory gathered by the crystal sea. I mentioned already in a a previous class that there actually is no crystal sea in heaven. If you will notice, when it says crystal sea, it's a lowercase c for crystal and a lowercase s for sea. That's good. That's the way it should be. And I think the majority of our songs, if not all of them, that talk about the crystal sea have it in lowercase. If you look through the book of Revelation, there is no capital letter C crystal, capital letter S C. There is no crystal sea. That, that, that doesn't exist. It is a sea of glass likened to crystal. Lowercase letters, perfect. Excellent. Good job. Let's get on into, into chapter 5. We have several things to discuss in chapter 5. I'm going to go through the first five verses and show you something, and then we'll have Mark Bailey go ahead and read all of chapter 5 front to end. Chapter 5, verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. 
So, what is the deal with this scroll? The, the, word, the word book is actually better translated scroll. You didn't really have books in the Roman Empire until probably towards the end of the first century. That's when they started binding one edge of the paper so that you could flip the pages. Before then, it was indeed rolled up scrolls. This, book, this, this, this Greek word means a small book, a scroll, a writing, a legal writing, a legal certificate, a legal bill, a legal document. It literally means a scroll, a papyrus scroll rolled up. If you look at BibleHub.com, 26 translations of the Bible use the word book, 24 use the scroll. So they're split pretty much right down the middle. And I've already mentioned that. By the end of the first, by the end of the first century, Rome actually started having bound books. But until then, it, it was papyrus rolls. So question, what is the purpose of this scroll that has seven seals? Verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? That word worthy is indeed translated correctly. It is the word worthy. It means worthy, worthy of, deserving, comparable, or suitable. Just in the book of Revelation alone, this word worthy is found four times. The Greek word or a version of it is found 41 times in the New Testament according to BibleHub.com. It means to weigh how comparably something weighs in or assigning weight, assigning a matching weight value as on scales. So, question number two. What does loosening these seals accomplish for us? Okay, and what does opening the scroll accomplish? I missed that one. Okay, now, verse 3. Is Louis Benavides in here? Because if he's here, I'm going to ask him this question. I don't see him. Uh, he's avoiding me. Okay, all right, I don't see him. He, 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 he likes this verse that's coming up. Verse 3, And no one in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look therein. Basically, it's saying no one was comparably suited, no one deserves, no one was equal to the task to open this scroll. I wish Lewis was in here so I could pick on him. Okay, so if you look at verse 2, who was worthy? Verse 3 says nobody, not in heaven, not on earth, not under the earth, to look on it or to even open it. But in verse 1, who's holding it in their right hand? And I promise you, if you answer it right, a lightning bolt will not come down and strike you. God. But hold it. It says in verse 2, who's worthy? In verse 3, it says no one, but God's holding it on His throne with His right hand. Do we have a problem? That's, that's the question that Lewis liked a lot. He... he, he he enjoyed that. He, he did a lot of extra studying on that just to try to understand it better. Why is God not worthy to open this scroll? Ooh. That's something that you, you don't even want to think that, much less say it out loud, because you know there is a bolt of lightning coming your way for even thinking it. Why is God not worthy to open the book? 
You looked at my notes. <laughs> Very good. You're, you are on the right track. Yes, yes, you're on the right track. We need, we need Ezekiel and Daniel to be taught, Brother James. I've been trying to get him to teach Ezekiel for, t- for some time now, and hopefully one day he'll be able to. He'll be able to teach it for us. I'm sorry, what? The lamb? You're about one verse ahead of me. Yeah. You're getting it. We're getting there. Yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. And I wept much. Verse 4. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. John was weeping. Why would that cause John to weep? One final, one final verse, one final question. And one of the elders said to me, Weep not, because the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. This word prevailed is the Greek word that. It is transliterated E-N-I-K-E-S-E-N. It means to conquer, to be victorious, to overcome, to prevail, to subdue. Seventeen variations of this word are found in the book of Revelation alone. So the question is, why is Jesus worthy to open the scroll? Because he prevailed? How did he prevail? What did he prevail against? So you've got these six questions. And people have a very bad habit of stopping at verse 5 and they start guessing about how, how do you answer these. Now, why did John weep? How did Jesus prevail? What does loosening the seals accomplish? All six of these, they stop at verse 5 and start trying to answer them. What I want you to see is this. If we allow the book of Revelation to talk to us, almost all the questions that we have about this book are going to be answered. And I'll tell you where they're going to be answered. They're going to be answered in the place that I affectionately refer to as the Forbidden Zone. That's chapter 6 through 20, and I call it that because that's pretty much the way we treat it. There's where your answers are. You don't have to guess why Christians suffer. You don't have to guess what the tribulation is. The answer is actually there. And all six of, the answers to all six of these questions are either going to be answered by chapter 5 or they're going to be answered by history. Okay, uh, Mr. Mark, will you continue with reading all of chapter 5, please? And let me see if I can get this going here. Why is that not working? Oh, it is, okay. Just a second, Mark. I'm, I am messing up here. What happened? Just, I'd just not be able to see it on my monitor for some reason. Okay. Mark, will you read chapter 5 for us, please? Okay, beginning in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll 
and to loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures excuse me, and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Thank you. For some reason, my computer was not letting me see the, the slideshow. I couldn't control it. Okay, I think, I think we're back now. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate that. So here's our, five, our, here's our six questions. We're going to let history... Or the, or the book of Revelation, answer each of these questions for us. Okay, question number one. What is the purpose of a scroll with seven seals? To get this answer, you're going to have to go back to Roman law. There is a Roman expert who lived 130 A.D. to 180 A.D. His name was Gaius. In his book, I guess that's chapter 2, verse 147, Anyway, in his writings, he actually explained what a scroll with seven seals meant. Under the Roman law, the last will and testament of the common folk were actually written and sealed in a scroll with seven seals. The rich people, they had other ways to to store their wills and, and to store it, but for the common folk, this was the way, this is the way it was done. This will, this last will and testament requires five witnesses and seven seals. You have the heir, the executor, and five witnesses. 
And these seals were put on here and peeled off by the individual witnesses to, to prove that the contents of this will had not been tampered with. The seven churches of Asia and John would have understood. They, they would not have to have been inspired to understand that symbology. They know Roman, they know the Roman laws, they know the Roman culture, they knew what what this represented. It represents a legal writing, a legal certificate, a legal bill, a legal document. That's the purpose of a scroll and seven seals under the Roman law. So what does loosing this losing the loosing I can't say that word, loosing, the seals accomplish. Now we know that the seals verify that the legal contents of this document has not been tampered with. But what, what's the point in Revelation of peeling a seal off? Now, technically we are not going to know the reason for this until we get to chapters 8 and 9. I'll go ahead and we'll go ahead and cover that real quick. In chapters 8 and 9, every time a seal is broken, one of three things is going to happen. Either the villain of Revelation is going to be judged, the villain of Revelation is going to be punished, or both. And what's particularly interesting about this, Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, the peeling of each of these seals is an opportunity for the villain of the book of Revelation to repent. Four times, including in, in chapter 9, verse 20, four times in the book of Revelation, God says, and still they repented not. The point of this was not to destroy somebody. The point was to get someone to repent. And of course, it didn't happen. So what does open, opening the scroll accomplish? Once you've got the, once you've got the uh, seals removed, what is opening going to do for you? We technically aren't going to know that until we get to chapter 16. But what happens when the scroll is open? That will is read. That document is read. That, that legal binding law is enforced. In the book of, in, in chapter 16, that's going to be represented by Armageddon. And we'll, we'll get to Armageddon when we get to chapter 16 and talk about it then. Here's the good one. Why is God not worthy to open the scroll? And uh, Randy hit, started hitting on it over there, getting close. The answer actually comes from the book, of, the book of Hebrews. And we just studied Hebrews. God selected Jesus to be the heir of all things. And Revelation chapter 5 actually explains what that means partially. Because Jesus is the one who, who prevailed. If you look at verse 9, how did Jesus prevail? It says, And they sung a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And you have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign forever. Usually I like to prove something from within the book of Revelation. This time we're going to have to go outside the Revelation to discuss this. 
In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness and high places. Romans chapter 8, which, by the way, was mentioned by one of our weekend seminars not long ago. Romans chapter 8, 37 and 39, says that we are more than conquerors through Jesus. Romans chapter 8 also says we're co-heirs with Jesus as well. The Lamb was worthy because He was slain and He defeated death for us. The Lamb is worthy because He was slain and He redeemed us to our God with His blood. The Lamb is worthy because He was slain and He made us kings and priests to God. I'm not going to stand up here and say that, that we accept God or we reject Him. I am going to say we accept or we reject God's sacrifice, which is, which is the blood of the Lamb. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. I told you we were going to be hitting that verse over and over again. There it is again. The blood of the Lamb is what we accept. The blood of the Lamb is what we reject. And as a result, Jesus has inherited the right to judge who accepts His blood and who does not. And it wasn't, it wasn't an assignment that He stole. It was an assignment given to Him by God. Because God made Him heir of all things. In a moment, we're going to see what else He's heir of. Let's go back one, one question. Why did John weep? Why did John weep? I have heard people take shots at this, trying to guess, and I haven't, I haven't heard a good guess yet. This scroll contains a resolution, a legal resolution, a legal judgment, or a solution to a situation coming straight from God. Now, John knew that this, what this scroll meant. He understood Roman culture. He knew what it was. And the fact that no one was worthy to open it and to resolve this issue just shows how desperate those Christians were in the first century to have this problem solved for them. And and the fact that John saw it so close to coming to a resolution and then suddenly no one is worthy to open the scrolls. His response was he wept. Any comments about any of that? Am I making sense? Is that logical? It's different. It's a little different coming from the book of Revelation for sure. We're going to take a little bit of a detour just for a second. I want to show you something. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the, bo- and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands. If you look at the original Greek, 10,000 times 10,000 is actually the word that we get our English word, myriad. The modern Greek definition of this term is actually 100 million. So, let's do what the premillennialists do, shall we? Let's play a number game. Let's say, let's try to figure out what the upper limit of this number can possibly be, and maybe we'll have an upper limit to what the population of heaven is. Let's try it. 
hundred million. The largest number you can get is going to be 999,999,999. So if you take 999 million, square it, and then you take thousands of thousands, the upper limit of that is going to be 999,999. So you take 999 million, square it, multiply it by 999,000 squared, and you're going to get a 9 followed by 27 zeros. It's a number game. Okay, I admit it. Figuratively, it just means an indefinitely large number. It wasn't meant to be literal. It wasn't meant to be used to calculate the population of heaven. But that does make you pause and think for a moment. If that's what Revelation says, and that is a possible number that comes from it, Psalm chapter 8 verse 4 comes to mind and it is a very good question. Psalm Psalm chapter 8 verse 4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that, that you visit him. If that's the population of heaven, and of course it's just a figurative number, it's a, fig- it's a figurative value, if that's a population of heaven, what makes me important? If God's got that many people, that many beings in heaven, why are any of us important to him? Why am I important? I'm just one small person. What makes me so important? Yeah. This is true. This is true. When we get to chapter 7, we'll talk about where that number comes from. You're right. The um, Give me one second, I'll tell you who. The Jehovah's Witness. They are the ones who say, yeah, 144,000 is all that's going to be saved. Which makes me wonder, 144,000 have already been saved, I'm sure, in the population, the history of the world. So, I don't have a chance. Right? Yeah. We'll get into more of that in chapter 7. You're right. That is true. That is true. Here's your bonus. To what is Jesus heir? Now, that's a large answer. This is not all that Jesus is heir to, but Revelation says this much. Revelation chapter 5 verse 12 says, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and the right to judge who receives his sacrifice and who does not. So there's your five questions. We're going to run into all sorts of questions all throughout the book of Revelation. All we have to do is be patient and let Revelation answer those questions for us because it will. Thousand-year reign? No problem. Revelation is going to tell us what that is. Armageddon? Oh, boy. Revelation tells us clearly what that is. The four horsemen? May not be as clear, but we will know that the four horsemen is not what you see on your deathbed coming to carry your soul wherever your soul needs to be carried. It doesn't even come close to saying that. Ooh, perfect timing. Any questions or comments? Well, any comments?
Yes. Yeah, the uh, the eight part series documentary series that I, that I that I was listening to, where I got that information from, they said that anyone who attacked Jerusalem was candidate to have themselves an ark. Anyone attacking Jerusalem could have taken the ark. Now, when the ark was still God's presence, were they allowed to even go in there without dying? I don't know. But theoretically, any army, doesn't matter which army it was, Babylonians, Babylonians, Romans, whoever, they had the possibility of taking the ark with them. Now next week we're going to look at Jeremiah. There is a, there is a theory that Jeremiah and his priest took the ark out of, out of, the, um, out of the, the temple and went out what's called Warren's Gate and then went into the tunnel um, the tunnel we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Huh? Yeah, well, b- before Hezekiah's tunnel, there's a tunnel that goes all the way up to the western wall. Uh, Gion, Gion Spring Tunnel. The theory was that he, he went out Warren's Gate, went straight down to, to the Gion Spring Tunnel, went south, connected with Hezekiah's tunnel, and, and made his way out southern Israel. And then headed east to go up to Mount Nebo where, where Moses stood and saw the promised land and actually hid it in that mountain. And we're going to see next week that um, there was actually an archaeologist who went up there and actually drew a map of where it was located, where he, found, where he thought he found it, directly beneath a church that was built on top of that mountain. And then the story continues that he actually later took it from Mount Nebo and went to, when he went to Ireland with it. There's an ancient Ireland do, Irish document that talks about a Jewish, a Jewish prophet with his priests who came with lots of gold, lots of gold and lots of religious relics and hid it there in Ireland. So... We're, we're spanning the globe here. We're going to eventually see that uh, possibly the Knights Templar took it, and they spanned the globe from eastern India all the way to Brazil. So, you know, pick your country, pick your continent. Interesting stuff. And then after we finish talking about the Ark of the Covenant, we're going to see what the book of Revelation says about it. But don't get too hasty because Revelation may not be saying what you think it says about it. Any more comments? Have I totally confused everybody now? Okay. You're in the same boat as me then. Well, thank you for being here. That is all. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.